1: Good day ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the Rio Can real estate investment trust second quarter 2021 conference call at this time all participants are in a listen only mode. After management's presentation, there will be a question and answer session and instructions will follow at that time. I would now like to hand the conference over to Jennifer Seuss, Senior Vice President and General Counsel. You may begin.
2: Thank you, good morning everyone. My name is Jennifer Seuss, Senior Vice President, General Counsel and Corporate Secretary for RIOCAN. Before we begin, I would like to draw your attention to the presentation materials that we will refer to in today's call, which were posted together with the MD&A and financials on RIOCAN's website earlier this morning. Before turning the call over to Jonathan, I am required to read the following cautionary statement. In talking about our financial and operating performance, and in responding to your questions, we may make forward-looking statements, including statements concerning RIOCAN's objectives, its strategies to achieve those objectives, as well as statements with respect to management's beliefs, plans, estimates and intentions, and similar statements concerning anticipated future events, results, circumstances, performance or expectations that are not historical facts. These statements are based on our current estimates and assumptions and are subject to risks and uncertainties that could cause our actual results to differ materially from the conclusions in these forward-looking statements. In discussing our financial and operating performance and in responding to your questions, we will also be referencing certain financial measures that are not generally accepted accounting principle measures, GAAP, under IFRS. These measures do not have any standardized definition prescribed by IFRS and are therefore unlikely to be comparable to similar measures presented by other reporting issuers. Non-GAAP measures should not be considered as alternatives to net earnings or comparable metrics determined in accordance with IFRS as indicators of RIOCAN's performance, liquidity, cash flows, and profitability. RIOCAN's management uses these measures to aid in assessing the trust's underlying core performance and provides these additional measures so that investors may do the same. Additional information on the material risks that could impact our actual results and the estimates and assumptions we applied in making these forward looking statements, together with details on our use of non GAAP financial measures, can be found in the financial statements for the period ended June 30, 2021, and management's discussion and analysis related thereto, as applicable, together with RioCan's most recent annual information form that are all available on our website and at www.cedar.com. I'll now turn the call over to Jonathan.
3: Thanks Jennifer, and thanks to all of you for joining us today. I have to say it's a real pleasure to be here in person with Rio Can's fully vaccinated senior leadership team. We're here in one boardroom and we're setting the tone for a safe return to a more normalized environment. I'm impressed by the innovation, the drive and commitment to our business shown every day by the executives in this room and also the people that they lead. The combined strength of our portfolio and our team's expertise has translated into a strong quarterly result that really demonstrate RioCan's resilience, stability, and its growth potential. We delivered robust operational and financial performance in spite of lockdowns that extended through much of the quarter. Our performance, in my mind, was impressive, but not surprising. When you think about it, if you're standing at virtually any prominent intersection or community in Canada's major markets, There's a Rio Camp property close by. Now the importance of this well-positioned physical space, I'd say it's been rediscovered over the past 18 months. Early conclusions about the struggles of retail have given way to the recognition that people want more engagement and more control in their shopping experience. Now I for one, I've struggled with stolen stolen packages, ill-fitting online clothing orders, ruined parcels that sat in snow and rain on my front porch And I would tell you that that from this, I would say the importance of bridging that last mile gap between distribution centers and consumers' homes has become critical. Stores may now operate in a different manner. I mean, they're continuously evolving, but they are absolutely critical in the delivery chain. And we're helping our tenants evolve their space to move along with these emerging trends and help solidify Rio Can's and its tenants' place in that last mile delivery chain. So we have programs like Rio Can Curbside Collect, and these are just small examples of this evolution. We intend to continue to formulate new ways to ensure that our properties maintain a critical role in the effective, in the effective last mile movement of goods between retailers and their consumers. Rio Can properties are, are a vital component of the communities in which we operate, be they grocery anchored, open air retail, residential, or mixed use. And we possess all of the tools required to evolve these great properties to maximize long term value for our unit holders. As vaccinations accelerate and, and restrictions start lifting across the country, it's clear that RioCan is emerging perfectly positioned to capitalize on pent up consumer activity that will benefit our tenants and ultimately you, our unit holders. Now, as ever, RioCan's story is one of strength, stability, and value creation. We're a Canadian real estate leader in ESG, and we continue to gain recognition for our commitment to responsible growth. We achieved an ESG rating upgrade by MSCI, or Morgan Stanley Capital International, for the third consecutive year. We earned the 2021 Green Lease Leader designation, and we were recognized as one of the top-ranked real estate firms in Corporate Knights' Best 50 Corporate Citizens in Canada for the second consecutive year. We progressed our DEI focus by publishing our inaugural DEI policy and launching a DEI scholarship program. We also celebrated Pride Month with a series of cultural initiatives to drive awareness and support for the LGBTQ2 plus community. We're going to build on this momentum, and we're going to continue to take action to maintain our status as an industry leader in sustainability. Now let's shift the focus over to our Q2 operating results. We had our best rent collection rate since the start of this pandemic with a total of 94.9% of our rental revenue collected for this quarter and approximately 95% of July's rent as of yesterday. Rent collection continues to improve as tenants resume regular business activity. As of this week, essentially all of Rio Can's tenants are open for business. Also, as we've consistently seen, rent collection improves as tenants receive funds from stimulus programs and as our vigorous rent collection efforts bear fruit. So these numbers should change and should improve. We are well on the path to pre-pandemic collection rates. Tenants are attracted to our exceptionally well-located properties, and this is evidenced by our ongoing leasing momentum. To that end, our great leasing team completed 1.4 million square feet of new and renewed leases this quarter alone. For context, our new leasing in the quarter was equivalent to that of the same quarter in 2019, which was, of course, pre-pandemic. We completed 100 new deals totaling 372,000 square feet and an average rent per square foot of $22.82, which is well above our portfolio average of just around $20 per square foot. This trend really demonstrates our ability to, to grow rent even in the midst of pandemic lockdowns. The majority of these new leases were completed with strong covenant tenants, primarily personal services, specialty, and essentially retailers. New leasing spreads of 9.2% provide another clear indication of the healthy upside between our average portfolio and market rents. We continue to see that well-capitalized, forward-thinking retailers are seizing on the opportunity to lease well-located space, which of course Rio Can has in abundance. Our FFO and same property NOI results continue to steadily recover. They still reflect the direct effects of COVID-19 and and pandemic-related provisions. However, as the pandemic subsides, the impact of these provisions will continue to lessen. At 40 cents per unit, our FFO increased by 14.3% when compared to the same period last year. Same property NOI increased by 7.8% for the second quarter, and it's going to continue to improve as occupancy levels trend back to their historic norms. Our committed occupancy was 96.1% by quarter end, And we're confident that our encouraging leasing and operating metrics will continue to result in organic FFO growth. This confidence is of course bolstered by the obvious strength and resilience of our tenant base. RioCan generates more than 91% of its annualized rental revenue from grocery anchored mixed use and open air centers. (laughs) The solid tenant base also perfectly positions us for the improvement and growth in all operating metrics as the impacts of COVID diminish. Turning now to Rio Can Living and Rio Can's ongoing developments. So residential projects are really a cornerstone of Rio Can's development program, so much so that residential development represents close to 83% of our 41 million square foot development pipeline. We currently have more than 1,200 operational residential units across four buildings in Toronto, Ottawa, and Calgary. This growing portfolio is a source of income diversification and NAV growth for the trust. a public health measures eased, and with that, in-person tours at our properties resumed. This resulted in notable progress at Brio in Calgary, which was 94% leased as of August 4th, which is up 20% since we reported in the first quarter. This is an outstanding result, given that, as you may recall, Brio commenced leasing at the height of the pandemic. Pivot in Toronto launched in December of 2020, it's now close to 50% leased, and there's been a dramatic acceleration in leasing activity in the three weeks since the province entered stage three. I believe that the implications of this recent residential leasing momentum span really further than our multifamily residential portfolio. The enhanced demand for urban transit-oriented mixed-use properties signifies a true validation of Rio Camp's growth strategy and a testament to the strength and resiliency of these communities in which we operate. Our Rio Living portfolio continues to expand. We recently commenced pre-leasing at Litho, a 210-unit project in Toronto, and Latitude, a 209-unit project in Ottawa. Strata, which is a 61-unit uni- uh, boutique mixed-use residential project rental in Toronto's Little Italy, will commence its pre-leasing in October of this year. Now, I had an opportunity to tour these buildings late last month, and like all Rio Cannes Living buildings, they're spectacular. Uh, I mean, they're spectacular in so many respects in their design, their location, and their amenity offering. We've seen every indication that there's going to be strong lease-up velocity at each one of these sites. We anticipate the Rio Canyon Living portfolio will include more than 10,500 residential units either completed or in different phases of development by 2023, which of course adds diverse NOI and NAV to our balance sheet. The portfolio includes three condo projects comprising nearly 1,250 units currently under construction. UC Tower, UC Uptowns in Oshawa, and 11YB in Yorkville are essentially sold out. Queen and Ashbridge condos in Toronto launched mid-pandemic and its 399 units are already close to 92% uh, sold. These have been tremendously successful projects in which over a four-year period, RioCan will see a full return of the capital we invested, plus impressive anticipated gains of approximately $140 million. These gains provide an alternative source of revenue and also serve as a valuable FFO bridge to supplement our productive core commercial portfolio. During the second quarter, RIOCAN also announced a new strategic approach for the development of mixed-use residential condo projects. This sees the trust selling a majority of its interest in these projects while retaining project oversight as general partner and sole development manager. This partnership structure enables RIOCAN to leverage its pipeline of prime locations and, equally importantly, its established development platform to efficiently raise capital. It also helps us mitigate development risk and earn management fees along with a promote. The consistent fee stream reflects the unparalleled expertise in managing the entire development process from zoning all the way through to unit sales. Verge, which is a 545-unit mixed-use residential project located along the Queensway in Toronto, marks the first independent condo launch under the RIOCAN Living banner. RIOCAN's mixed-use development projects continue unabated through the pandemic and we anticipate completing 590,000 square feet of development by the end of this year. As always, we continue to look ahead to ensure growth through sustainable development. Our pipeline of zoning entitlements is one of the largest in the industry. It translates into lucrative opportunities to convert properties to their optimal uses. A proven cycle that will continue to pay off in 2021 and long into the future. We're gonna use this vast pipeline of air rights and seek out partners to enhance value, reduce exposure, and equally important, to be rewarded for our deep and experienced development and residential platform through equitable fee structures. Now I'm gonna take a moment to briefly highlight our ongoing and very active capital recycling initiatives. The quality of our assets and our established management expertise continue to attract strong valuations and investment from well-respected institutional funds and enable us to monetize the value that we've created in our portfolio. As of August 4th, a total of $420 million of dispositions were closed at a weighted average cap rate of 4.26%. The trust further entered into firm or conditional agreements to dispose 100% or partial interest in a number of properties for total sales proceeds of an additional $420.8 million, including the recently announced Sun Life transaction. Between closed, Firm and conditional deals, we expect to net proceeds of approximately $841 million at an average cap rate of 3.76%, assuming, of course, that all of these transactions are finalized. And these assets range from conventional retail to mixed use to income producing land, or sorry, to non income producing land. I should correct myself. These transactions include the sale of partial interest in development properties or future density and the closing of pre-arranged air-right sales, which allow the trust to realize excess density value, attributed to potential redevelopment for highest and best use. The volume of deals illustrates the transaction activity in the retail property market and the strong appeal of our assets to a variety of buyers. Now, the proceeds are going to work hard for our unit holders. The capital is going to be allocated towards paying down debt and funding development, which sets us up well for our future sustainable growth. We also continue to invest in the strength of our team. As you know, I firmly believe that our incredibly integrated and experienced executive bench is the driving force behind RioCan's adaptability and growth. And I'm happy to announce that we further strengthened this team with the recent appointments of two exceptional leaders. We recognize the importance of a strong brand and a differentiated culture, and as such, Terry Andrianopoulos was promoted to Senior Vice President, People and Brand effective June of this year. Terry's a trusted leader who's been with RIOCAN for more than five years. She's held a variety of roles that include responsibility for marketing, communications, and most recently, human resources. Terry's new role elevates her to our senior management team, and she's working collaboratively with the team to differentiate our brand, further develop our talent, and reinforce the culture of excellence here at RIOCAN. Dennis Blasuti will start as RIOCAN's CFO effective September 7th of this year. Dennis is a proven leader with a breadth of financial knowledge and relevant experience. His career spans more than 18 years with a depth of experience in financial management, business leadership, and corporate strategy. Beyond his finance expertise, Dennis is going to be a strong addition to the team in two priority areas for RIOCAN, ESG and people and culture. He has a firm grasp of ESG and deep knowledge of environmental practices, in particular, given his first-hand experience with sustainable technologies at EnWave. Dennis is known to be a collaborative and inclusive leader, and I'm confident that his effective relationship and team-building skills will complement our team and further strengthen our connections with the investment community, and I'm looking forward to introducing him to you all. Now, before I turn the call over to Franca Smith to discuss our financial performance for the quarter, I want to first express my and RIOCAN's sincere appreciation. Franca has been serving as RIOCAN's interim CFO for the entire second quarter. Her expertise, her collaboration, her outstanding leadership has translated into such a seamless transition period. I'm so impressed with the acumen and commitment of the entire finance team, which has been led so well by Franca. With that, Franca, I'll now turn the call over to you.
4: Thank you, Jonathan, and good morning, everyone. Great progress is being made in moving into the post-pandemic environment, and we are all delighted to return to our gathering spaces, and I know that I certainly am. While reopening is well underway and the end is in sight, the third wave of the pandemic extended lockdowns through much of the second quarter. As Jonathan highlighted, despite this operating environment, RioCAN delivered strong Q2 operating results on all fronts. Q2 FFO per unit was 40 cents, An improvement of 5 cents or 14.3% over Q2 2020. The main driver of this year over year change was lower pandemic related provision of approximately 14 million. And we also recognized 2.7 million in interest cost savings and 1.9 million in higher residential inventory gains, which were partially offset by lower other operating income or other other income, pardon me, reflecting a fee received in 2020 for terminating a forward purchase agreement. With respect to development, it is worth reiterating that development is fundamental to unlocking the significant value inherent in our portfolio. Focused on mixed-use residential development, our pipeline will serve to diversify our income while addressing the need for housing in Canada. Throughout the pandemic, RIOCAN's development program continued to make meaningful progress, we expect development spend for 2021 to range between $425 million to $475 million, a decline from our estimate of Q2 2021, mainly due to timing. Looking beyond 2021, our development spend is expected to taper from this level. Three main drivers of this lower estimated future spend include the delivery of a significant portion of the well this year, the staggered nature of our pipeline, and sharing of development costs and risks through existing and new strategic partnerships. As always, we take a prudent approach to manage our development programs and maintain our plans to primarily self-fund development through retained free cash flow, divestiture proceeds, strategic partnerships, and accelerated capital recycling through condo or townhouse development. We expect to keep total IFRS value of properties under development and residential inventory combined as a percentage of gross book value of assets at about 10% or lower, despite the 15% limit allowed under our credit facilities and as of quarter end, this metric was 10.9%. Turning to our balance sheet, we continue to maintain ample liquidity, and as of June 30th, our liquidity stood at 1.2 billion in the form of cash and cash equivalents and undrawn committed revolving lines of credit and other credit facilities. Our mortgage maturities for 2021 were $380 million, of which only 42 million have yet to be refinanced, and we expect to refinance them in due course. In addition, we have a large unencumbered asset pool of 8.5 billion on a pro share basis, which generated 60% of our annualized NOI and provided 2.24 times coverage of our unsecured debt as of quarter end. At the end of the second quarter, our debt to adjusted EBITDA was, eight, was 9.87 times, compared to 10 times in Q1 2021, and this quarter-over-quarter quarter improvement was largely due to a lower pandemic-related provision. Debt to total assets was 447 an improvement from 453 in Q1 2021. And for these two metrics, our long-term targets remain at eight times or lower and a range of 38% to 42% respectively. RIOCAN's successful capital recycling program and ongoing improvements in operations will serve to reduce these metrics in the near to medium term. Our cost of debt continued to decline with the weighted average effective interest rate of 3.09% on a pro-share basis, which compares to 3.22% at year end 2020. As of June 30th, RioCan's unsecured secured debt composition was 54.46 on a pro share basis, and we continue to target shifting this ratio to 70 30 over time while balancing various factors such as credit rating implications, cost of debt, debt ladder, and liquidity needs. RIOCAN is committed to a disciplined approach to managing its balance sheet and capital structure in order to maintain strong liquidity and financial flexibility. Our approach has proven critical to navigating through the pandemic and will continue to position RIOCAN well as we accelerate growth and invest in value creation initiatives for the long term. As interim CFO, it was a pleasure to have the opportunity to work with all of you, and I look forward to welcoming Dennis on September 7th and with that, I'll pass it back to Jonathan for closing remarks. Thank you.
3: Thanks so much, Franca, you did great for uh, your first quarter in the chair. Um, now to wrap this up before we turn it over to questions, I wanna emphasize how proud I am of how Rio Can has really navigated this challenging time. We continue to demonstrate the ability to create exceptional and successful communities in any context, be they urban or suburban, commercial, residential, or mixed use. As I mentioned when I opened this call, Rio Can is precisely where Canadians want and need to be. We've got enduring strength, stability and growth and a strategy to create lasting value. We're poised to thrive now that the economy has reopened and I'm optimistic about the quarters and years to come. It's a privilege to lead this incredible team and to have this well-positioned portfolio to create value for you, our unit holders. So thank you very much. And now we, this team, are here to respond to your questions.
1: At this time, if you'd like to ask a question, press star one on your telephone keypad. Again, that's star one to ask a question. Please hold while we compile the Q&A roster. Your first question comes from the line of Sam Damiani with TD Securities
5: thanks and good morning everyone morning. Um, yeah Jonathan I think you mentioned the uh, you know essentially all of the tenants are open today I don't know I didn't see the stat for I guess quarter end specifically but I, I assume it's up a little bit from from uh, Q2 and just curious w- with the reopening that's you know advanced in in Ontario and Alberta in recent uh, weeks and months you know how is the leasing activity uh, change in turn of, terms of you know t- tenanted composition and activity. It just rough I just saw that the, the new leasing volumes were down a little bit from from Q1, which were exceptionally strong. But just curious, what what the trends are.
3: Well, I can give you a bit of uh, a bit of an overview, and then I'll hand it over to Jeff Ross, um, our, our head of leasing. Um, but I think they've been consistent uh, throughout since I would say the beginning of, of the year, or close to the beginning of the year, where I think a lot of our tenants, including the U.S. based ones, are seeing opportunity to grow, particularly in the markets where RioCan uh, resides. And so we're seeing continuous and sustainable leasing momentum. Um, in the vast majority of our of our environments, particularly open air uh, and now increasingly urban environments, uh, there are certainly some areas that, that are still a little bit slow off the mark, like office, uh, where in Toronto in particular, there's still a bit of, uh, I would say, uh, discovery going on with respect to um, what office users need at this point. But we're confident that where we're positioned in, in the market from an office perspective, that will pick up over time. And we're even starting to now see A bit of that momentum take hold, Uh, and then enclosed malls. I mean, I think there's 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 some. I would say there's a little bit of um, of uh, slowness in in the enclosed mall space relative to the open air space. But Jeff, do you have any more insights for Sam?
6: Oh yes, Sam. The velocity of meetings with tenants is off the charts right now. The biggest thing we're waiting for was that comfort level to get there to actually get uh, tours going and people on the ground. Um, and we're seeing a lot more of that. We're starting to see that in a very positive way uh, from our uh, tenants that we're talking to down in the U.S., who are now getting more comfortable and kind of booking trips. And you know full well that a lot of those guys really need to walk uh, the uh, asset before they're ready to commit. So um, again, those meetings continue uh, at a, a wonderful velocity. The service commercial amount of deals are going through the roof. A lot of government tenders, a lot of hard goods. Uh, on the food and QSR, as fast as the unit is coming back to us, and that velocity has slowed, there's a good number of people that are ready to pick them up. So uh, right now, I'm being very uh, optimistic about what the next quarter is going to bring us into 2022. But uh, if uh, talk can uh, then turn to conversion, I'm feeling really good going into 22.
5: Okay, that's very helpful. And I just, just quickly, you know between Alberta and versus Lake Ontario and Quebec with the sort of different reopening plans and the strategies I mean is, is there a difference there in terms of tenant tenant leasing velocity is there any is, is it any meaningfully different in Alberta today?
3: No, I think that uh, all three of those provinces are are responding similarly um, and keeping in mind that we're, we're really in the major markets in those in those uh, provinces and those major markets are exactly where tenants are expressing interest being. So uh, we're, we're not really seeing a market difference. We always say that Toronto is always going to uh, have a little bit more action, um, but it, there's no market difference over the last few months in interest between those provinces.
5: Okay. Thank you. I'll turn it back.
3: No problem, Sam. Have a good day.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Mark Rothschild with Ken Corday.
3: Hey, Mark.
7: Hey, thanks. Good morning, everyone. Um, just kind of following on what you were discussing with Sam, the retention rate seems solid, yet you're still classifying about 20% or so of your tenants as vulnerable. How should we get into what that means, and are those tenants in the, in the bucket that, would not be, that you did not retain, um, and how would you expect that to trend going forward with, with those tenants?
3: So my view would be that uh, out of the, any tenants that we would have lost, I would say that, and I don't have the science in front of me, but the vast majority of those would have been from that category, um, and that, some of that's by design. Quite honestly, we're not working hard to retain some of those tenants that we do believe is uh, a, sort of a vulnerable subset, um, and that, um, you know, that, that category is the same as it was during the pandemic, and I would say that over time, the concerns surrounding some of those uses will dissipate. Um, because they're starting to prove that, you know what, in this environment, this post-pandemic, and I say that with a lot of hope but also a lot of confidence in this post-pandemic world, that they will, again, regain the strength and lose some of those attributes that we felt needed to, to place them in that category. You know, examples would be like, do I think that gyms will remain a, um, a, a very problematic use in the future? No, I don't. I think we're all confident that the Canadian society will absorb the, uh, the need for gyms again. Um, and, and there's certainly a lot of restaurants that are in that category as well because during COVID, they were closed. Um, but I think, sorry, not during COVID, during the pandemic, they were closed. Um, but I think as, as restrictions ease, there's a lot of those tenants that are very well positioned and their businesses are strong so I think they will move out of that category over time, but just out of prudence and an abundance of, uh, of sort of conservatism, we've left the categories and the and the tenants within them pretty much the same um, because we've just, even into Q2, a lot of them were closed for business.
7: Okay, great. Maybe just one more question. Sure. In regards to the strategy to sell the majority of a condo development project and retain the management and earn fees that way, um, to, to what extent is that driven by, uh, being more careful with your capital to reduce leverage or that's a strategy that you just think is Most effective for Rio can obviously those projects are in most cases very profitable and you have the capacity to fund them on your own
3: Well, I think there's a number of reasons that, that stand behind that strategy mark um, one of them as you suggest is certainly um, the, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the diversification of risk. Um, you know, we also have certain limitations from a from a sift perspective as to how much condo we can do. Um, but also, you know, it's it's something where we think we could really lever our expertise and garner uh, recurring and sustainable fees, uh, more so than just kind of the you know lumpy condo gains, which will still be part of our balance sheet going forward. But we feel this is a way to diversify and prolong and sustain the income flow um, in a little bit more of a predictable and meaningful manner. Uh, and, you know, we've got some great expertise here, and we want to leverage that and get paid for that expertise. So we really do like the, the, the plan for that reason, but there's a number of others that stand behind it as well.
7: Okay, great. Thanks.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Tall Woolley with National Bank Financial.
3: Hey,
8: Tal. Hey, good morning. Uh, let's start out with a more simple housekeeping question first. Just on um, the credit rating, um, you know, there's obviously been, they've all, you know, all the ratings agencies have kind of gotten a little bit more active over the last couple months. Um, for you guys, what, what sort of are the debt numbers you need to hit uh, with, uh, I think it's S&P, uh, to sort of maintain the, maintain the current rating? And by when do you need to hit them? Well,
3: it's not, I mean, they're, they're sort of paying attention to us, but uh, they haven't sort of cast that in stone. But I think what they're looking at is trends, and they really do favor the trend in our net debt to EBITDA stat, um, as well as our capital structure putting more in unsecured over secured debt. And I think it's those trends that really have them um, call it at bay right now and quite satisfied with, with where we're going. Uh, but we're, we're in close contact with them, Tell. Um, just letting them know what our pipeline looks like and where our balance sheet is going based on our on our best prognostications. Um, so you know, we haven't really disclosed exactly what kind of guidance they've given us, but we're we're feeling confident that we're that we're trending in the
8: very much the right direction. Okay, and um, I've just got two larger sort of strategic questions. So um, we've seen some of your peers like Crombie talk about. Utilizing their open air centers in different ways, you know they're going to be taking, you know they've announced one project where they're going to be overhauling a tenant or an anchor tenant at an open air center and transforming that more into logistics space. Obviously, as one of the largest, um, you know, owners of open air centers across the country, like, have you thought about what are some of the new uses for that format too? I know we've talked a lot about mixed use as being, you know, a big driver for RioCan, but I'm wondering if you know, you're thinking differently about open air centers going forward, too. Well, we
3: think about it all the time. And and what I would suggest to you, Tal, is that um, the last year and a half has taught us that our existing uses in a lot of these centers are actually very relevant, um, particularly grocery anchored centers. And the truth is we're at 96.1% occupancy now, and that's trending up. And I think we really have gone beyond the trough where we were last year. So it's not like we have an abundance of opportunity. I mean, tenants, Conventional retailers really very much favor being in our centers, so um, we, you know, I would I would not want to forego a great conventional use to put in a novel use that we actually don't have a, a lot of understanding about, like uh, like fulfillment. That being said, we're always looking for opportunities within our centers that will drive traffic, and so when it comes to things like medical uses or if there are sort of distribution methodologies we can use like putting in some sort of uh, micro-fulfillment, as long as it supports and aids the success of the center, we are considering it. And we have our tentacles out across the country and beyond looking for opportunities to better our shopping experience and to better the experience for our customers who are our tenants. And if that means putting a micro-fulfillment depot or something like that, in some of our shopping centers, if the opportunity is there and we can manage it effectively and it's a good allocation of our capital, then yeah, absolutely we're gonna consider it. But we're not really coming out with a blanket statement saying that by 2023 we wanna have micro-fulfillment as a fundamental pillar within our business plan. I think that's a little too broad a statement. What we are saying is that we want to improve and diversify the use within our open open air centers um, and we're going to look at all different types of uses that improve the experience and, of course, the cash flow in the shopping centers. Long-winded
8: answer, but hopefully that helps you. No, no, that's good. Good, that's that's perfect. Color. Um, and then, just I guess, lastly, on RioCan Living, um, you're going to be sponsoring your sort of first independent developments. Um, the portfolio is going to scale up uh, over the next few years to the size of some of the publicly traded players. You know that we have out here in Canada now, and you know there is such a cost of capital differential. And I'm just wondering, like over the longer term, as that business scales up, is RioCan stock the right container for RioCan Living over the long haul, or should you know the should you be considering other, maybe other other ways to sort of maximize the opportunity to get a better cost of capital for that platform?
3: I think for now, uh, given the scale of it relative to the rest of our balance sheet, it certainly it fits within the, the Rio Can mothership. Uh, at, at a certain point when we achieve a certain amount of scale, we'll consider whatever creates total unit holder return for our constituents. Um, and then on the condo side, I mean that's the rental side, and on the condo side I, I really do favour our new structure where we really are taking a minority interest but but overseeing the development and getting paid for that process. Um, and I think that is, you know, uh, my hope is that investors will see value in that proposition and, and really buy into the fact that we can create value through those, that vehicle. But ultimately, what our job is as a management team is to create total unit holder return. And if we're not getting recognized for the multi-res platform or mixed-use platform that we're creating here in Rio Can Living, then we'll figure out ways to get maximized value out of it. Um, but that's something we're going to Assess as we uh, we maintain some scale or retain some scale. So that's uh, that's definitely the beauty of it is that the more of these types of assets we build and own, the more flexibility and the more avenues are available to us. Whether it is hanging onto it within the REIT, which again my mind should create some multiple expansion and diverse and very solid income, or doing other things with it, I think we'll have a lot of
8: uh, a lot of potential. And just lastly, on the operational side for Rio Can Living, like as you build this up, I I can't remember exactly. You're you were using an outside partner for property management, I believe, on the initial or sort of buildings. Have you know? Is there a point at which you look at bringing that in house and trying to brand a little bit more aggressively to the consumer? Uh, so at this point, we don't have the scale to justify it.
3: Um, it's something that. We at. And again, right now, we've got excellent third-party managers, and in some cases, they're, they're actually partners and very much aligned with us in the ownership of the building, and we're seeing great results out of, our, out of these managers. I mean, really, we think they are best in class and representing the Rio Can Living brand very well. Um, but we built up a really good asset management function that oversees those managers, and we've now expanded the breadth of Rio Can Living to include all of the skills and capabilities that, that will allow us to build and oversee ownership of these things which John Ballantyne is overseeing, and I think we're, you know, we built up that team in a really effective way. But insofar as property management goes, like I said at this point, it's not something that we're considering um, with any real vigor. I think it's something that if we get uh, a certain amount of scale, it's something we would consider.
8: Okay, perfect. Thanks very much, Jonathan. No problem, Have a great day.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Jenny Ma with BMO Capital Market.
9: Thank you and good morning everyone. morning, Jen. I have a few questions on the condo development JV. I'm wondering if the partnership structure is fixed with the same four partners or are you using this more as a blueprint to um, maybe solicit different partners? And when you look across the portfolio, how do you select which projects to be putting into this JV and, and whether or not you look at it as condo versus rental?
3: So the, um, the answer to your first question is the latter, meaning that it is just a, it's a prototype. The, the investors that we have in the first deal at Verge are, I mean, again, they're very logical to come into other transactions that we do uh, and to be limited partners in, in a few of these projects, but it's not, a, it's not like an open-ended or closed-ended fund. Um, these, are, these are one-off partnerships created for each individual transaction. And with respect to your second question, it's really, uh, I mean, it's a property by property assessment whether we do it as condo or rental. And if we choose to do it condo, um, there's nothing etched in stone suggesting that we will always go with this methodology and the structure, but we do believe that it is the right alternative for our unit holders and it's something that we will likely pursue whenever given the opportunity. So when we do elect to go condo, it's Quite likely that we will go with this um, with this structure.
9: Okay, so there's no um, obligation to go back to the same partners. Like, I guess, you know, how do oh. you how do you solicit partners through this uh, to, through this process then? And and is it a really you know, is it is a different bucket of investor that's interested in this piece, given that it's a you know a bit of a limited life um, project as opposed to building long-term rentals?
3: For sure. I mean, multi-res, you're getting a lot of interest, as you know, as you saw from our deal with Sunlight BGO from that institutional set who simply wants the recurring income and they're very much aligned with us in that view just to hold it forever and ever, maximize the income we can get out of the project. Whereas the archetype for the uh, LP investors on our condo are looking for an IRR-driven return uh, that has an exit. And um, that that to us is is very much a different profile than who we're seeing and and, uh, and partnering with on the multi-res rental front. Um, So I think that, and the good news is that there are many entities out there who are very much interested in these types of condo developments, particularly when they're aligned with a well-capitalized and increasingly more experienced team like we have here at RioCan.
9: Okay, great. Uh, Now, does this new prototype accelerate your development pipeline at all. I mean I recognize that your your current condo projects are sort of 50-50, so you're going from sort of fifty to eighty percent. Um, does it expand what you can pursue at any given point and and if so, um, you talked about utilizing your bandwidth, but you know exactly how much bandwidth do you think you have for additional projects and at what point do you need to expand your team?
3: Yeah, I mean we look ahead, we we now look ahead very thoroughly five years and we, we get a sense of how much capital we are going to allocate towards developments. We, of course, want to make sure that we are sustaining a, a sizable improvement in our multi-res rental units, and then we can get a sense of how much we want to allocate to, to condo projects because we have a number of viable potential condo projects in our pipeline. Once we've done that, of course, you know, the, the less you own of each project, the more projects you can do. So the, the short answer to your question is yes, it does increase our ability to do more projects, uh, and, uh, and and so I think that, that's part of the benefit.
9: Great. And, and your bandwidth allows for that expansion at this point?
3: Yes. Great. Uh,
9: with respect to your, your non-core assets, whether they be the malls or the, the secondary tertiary market assets, um, can you talk about whether or not there's much of a market for those and at this point, given that they, and I don't know how much overlap um, you know, between the two different buckets are, but it's less than 10% of your holdings, um, are, are you still actively looking to, to sell these assets or do you just sort of let that number grind down as you um, pursue avenues, other avenues of growth?
3: So what I would say there, Jenny, is that, um, first of all, there, there is a market for it, as we demonstrated by a few transactions that uh, have been done over the course of the last uh, five or six months. Um, But what I would say is now that we're well over 90% in major markets, which was always our objective, it becomes less of a question as to whether they're in secondary markets and more of a question of are they performing well, are they growth prospects, or are they assets that simply would be better in someone else's hands, and we're now blind to the geography, meaning that we would just as quickly sell something in a major market than we would in a secondary market if it is underperforming and we don't really have an answer as to how we can have it become a growth, uh, a growth creator. So um, we are always looking to improve through subtraction. And what I would tell you from our experiences is, yes, there is an increasingly improving market for those types of assets.
9: Okay, thank you. And then my final question is with regard to the parking revenue um it looks like it's still tracking well below 2019 levels i'm just wondering you know is it weighted towards um the you know, office driven parking or or retail traffic um and, and what do you need to see to get it sort of back close to the 2019
3: levels i'm going to hand that over to john valentine to address that
10: yeah Jenny, it is really tied more to the office component and the retail component of mixed-use properties we expect, as back-to-office programs kick in uh, for various companies across our portfolio, we will see uh, a market increase in the parking revenues. You're right; they're probably about 40% now of what they typically are. So we expect, you know, through the uh, end of the third quarter and start of the fourth, for them to to ramp back up, with probably back to you know full capacity in the new year of 2022.
9: And is this just daily parking, or is it more committed monthly parking? Uh,
10: The committed parking has held up for the most part. It's more daily
9: parking. Great. Thank you very much, everyone.
3: Thanks, Jenny. Have a great day.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Howard Long with Veritas Investment.
11: Thanks. Uh, Good morning, um just uh, just wanted to turn back to the Real Can Living. I know it's a lot of interest to to all to all of us. Can you give us an idea of um you know the the typical fee structure and what you know what what it'll be based on or what it's looking like at least for the verge?
3: Uh so for for so you're talking about just the condo LP because real can living is obviously got of a breadth than just the condo uh, LP. Um, so it's it's really quite simple I mean we get work fees for development management um, we do I mean when we sell the land to the limited partnership there's there I mean in Verge there was a, a capital creation through that sale um, but the uh, the fees are really work fees and um Oversight of you know if we if we take care of financing there's there's fees for financing uh, so very much your typical standard fees and then there's also a promote structure where assuming we clear a hurdle on IRR for the project we get an outside or disproportionate amount of the um, of the proceeds from the sales of the ultimate units so, Andrew I don't know if there's anything uh, to add to that
11: no that's exactly what it is it's work fees and the promote yeah. Right, right, yeah, that that seems to make sense uh, for 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 the uh, involvement that you guys have, um, and just maybe on the on the accounting, you know, for, for these uh, future partnerships, um, do you are do you consolidate them, um, or you know, because you have a minority interest, you'll you 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 won't. Uh, just kind of want a reminder on that.
4: Um, yeah, good morning. Uh, so that particular um, structure is uh, equity accounted. Uh, just given the the criteria, you know how complicated kind of this analysis can sometimes be, but um, in in particular uh, that one is uh, is considered to be a joint venture and equity accounted.
11: Right, right. but but law. I guess it's it, yeah. uh, and, and I guess it'll depend on the circumstances and for future projects whether uh, it'll be consolidated or uh, or equity accounted.
4: Yeah, we'll we'll tend to I think follow basically the the same principles. Uh, but as you know, each uh, each each deal will be very specific to the circumstances and the uh, the partnership agreement. So it, it will require, obviously, uh, you know, negotiations and uh, and analysis, and uh, you, you it's quite a technical area of the accounting standards. So, uh, you know, we, we will uh, we'll do our best to um, to structure it accordingly.
11: Oh yeah, that 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 makes sense. I know it's uh, it's, it's definitely a very very technical standard. Uh, just wanted to turn to the uh, the, the top tenants um, kind of disclosure you have uh, there um, it, it, it looks like you know overall um, an average rent per location or annualized rent per location for these tenants you know has has increased but you know the number of locations have have gone down uh, for these top tenants is that just would you just say it's just from the disposition strategy or is there anything you'd like to call out about um, a more diverse
3: tenant base I think largely it's, uh, it's the disposition strategy and us getting um, enhanced rents out of, out of um, those who are outside of that, that list, but I, I think it's largely the disposition strategy. Okay. Yeah,
11: that,
3: that makes sense. Uh,
11: thanks, thanks. I'll,
3: uh, I'll uh, turn it back. No problem, Howard. Have a good day.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Pammy Beer with RBC Capital Markets.
12: Good morning, Paulie. Uh, good morning. Hello, everyone. Uh, just uh, I, w- I wanted to maybe just come back to the uh, to the leasing conversation. You know, as the reopening does ramp up, uh, can you maybe comment on how the leasing strategy, h- how is it evolving at this stage in terms of, you know, duration, uh, rent steps, maybe pushing for more aggressive leasing spreads, uh, and maybe just you know thoughts on inducements um, at this stage. Going, uh, as we look ahead to uh, the next twelve months.
3: Yeah, I'll start and then I'll hand it over to Jeff again for some more color there. But I think um, you know we've, we've put ourselves in a good position pre-COVID and we started seeing the benefits of, of kind of uh, improving our portfolio through the disposition process so that we can be in a good negotiating position with our tenants. Obviously during COVID that pretty much ceased. And now that we are uh, on the, let's call it the, the positive side of the pandemic, Um, we are starting to get more favorable negotiating environments where we can start to talk about much more conventional terms um, where capital is no longer necessarily enhanced and where um, there is sort of year-over-year increases embedded in the leasing. Now, the one exception there, and this is by design and we're fine with it, is when you're talking about urban environments and mixed-use properties that are in, like, the downtown cores, Um, Oftentimes, you want the right types of tenant mix. I mean, we always want the right types of tenant mix, but in those cases, you want tenants that are local, you want tenants that uh, fit within the development that you're creating, and in order to get those tenants, because they're not nationals, Sometimes you do have to be a little more creative in the deal structure. You do shorter terms, you do points deals, you do provide them with some capital. And we think that that's a worthwhile trade off because we're effectively betting on their businesses. And then in two years, once they stabilize, we will redo those terms to reflect a more um, normalized situation. Um, but I think, and then of course, in enclosed malls, there's, there's still a bit of softness there, so we're having to be a little more aggressive with some of the TI's we're providing. But Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, in the open air centers where the bulk of our income is coming from, it's kind of getting back to business as usual?
6: It really is, yeah. It's it's much more reflecting pre-pandemic environment. But the one thing that we've always been known for is the speed of the life cycles of our deals. We're very quick to respond, but we're actually not putting the brakes on, but slowing down a little bit to scrutinize the strength of the tenancies a lot more than we ever have in the past. Not that we weren't always careful, we were, but we want to know what the strength of the new tenant is coming out of this pandemic and what it looks like. And more than ever, we're pressing for them to have skin in the game as well. We're prepared to put up capital for the right type of tenancies, but we want to make sure, maybe it's not always shoulder to shoulder, but making sure that they've got uh, as much uh, invested in the individual units as we do. So we're spending a lot more time looking at it. And wherever possible, changing that tenant mix where it makes sense. Getting the service commercial or the hard good guys in, where maybe you had a run of fashion, and again, fashion is never going to completely disappear from our portfolio, but we're just a lot more selective. And then, as tenancies opened up a little bit over the last year, we're repositioning some of these tenancies to make the mall, the centers themselves, flow a little bit differently, moving some tenants around, and coming up with a better layout for the individual centers. So, we're very much paying attention to it.
12: Yeah, I know it's uh, it's good to hear that the strategy is, uh, seems, uh, the momentum seems to be picking up for sure. Um, just coming back to the comments on enclosed malls, um, it, like have you seen uh, tenants look to migrate out of some of that space, whether it's in your portfolio or in others, and into some of your open air space?
6: Yeah, listen, it, it's as it was before. The, the the There's tenants that are looking at both sides. They're looking both unenclosed uh, and they've... Uh, Uh, are still maintaining their position in enclosed centers Um, so we're we're seeing the ones that were active on both sides to continue to do so we haven't seen a whole lot of new uh, entrance into the enclosed mall world but uh, listen I walk these centers every week every day and there are uh, footfalls in there and there are uh, opportunities and I don't think that this uh, means the end of the enclosed malls, and I think over the next year or two you're going to start to see some new uh, bodies start to flow into that vehicle.
3: but that said and, and I'll, I'll add to that, and I think that's a really appropriate answer, but it's you know going back to why we got into the open air business in the first place, it was to create a cheaper alternative for tenants who wanted to not have a significant camera tax load uh, and and wanted convenient parking right in front of their centers and I think Nowadays, tenants, uh, certain, the, certain of the, um, the necessity-based tenants that we cater to are very much in favor of that type of environment versus the economics that attach to an enclosed mall environment. Um, so they really are still favoring that open air um, center environment because of those economics. And I'm not sure that's gonna end anytime soon. Um, so you know, we're, we're doing well in maintaining a really good environment for our enclosed mall tenants, but I do think And I'm sure Jeff will agree that the universe of those tenants is not growing, uh, at best, it's maintaining itself.
12: Yep, agreed. Got it. Maybe just uh, one last one. You know, as these uh, support starts to come off for tenants with respect to the SIRS later this year, what types of conversations are you having with them in terms of maybe providing um, some extension of support, um, if any at all, through the the
3: balance of the year or even into 2022? I'm going to hand that over to Oliver Harrison, our head of operations.
10: Thanks, Bobby. Uh, I mean, the conversations with tenants right now are really focused on getting them back on their feet and reopening. I suspect as we get closer to October 23rd, there will be some conversations with, um, you know, with the SERS eligible uh, category of our uh, of our tenant pool that are, are looking to extend the assistance program. Um, but right now, it's, it's not really the focus of our conversations with tenants. It's really Help them reopen
12: successfully uh, as, uh, as things start to open up. And just lastly, on, on the search, do you, any better sense as to how many, what proportion of your, your tenants are receiving uh, support?
10: If we use our rent collection sort of results as a proxy, uh, I would say, you know, for our category three tenants, which are mainly our independent tenants. For which the program is primarily designed. Um, the vast majority of them are participating in the program successfully um, and uh, obviously the amount of financial support they're getting is a uh, byproduct of whether or not they were forced to close, able to maintain um, uh, some level of operation uh, and uh, the uh, the diminution in sales that they, uh, they realize. So I would say Participation is very high for eligible tenants, uh, and uh, the program is working for them, and, and we're benefiting from it as well uh, as they pass those um, uh, subsidies on to us in the form of rent.
3: And then the percentage of our portfolio that that makes up was about 15%. Yeah. So it's, I don't think it's, I don't think we have the precise math there, nor have we disclosed it, Tommy. But it's um, you know it's it's not insignificant, and I think you know a lot of the the questions that I've been fielding from investors. Um, Not to presuppose what you're thinking is, okay, what happens when the SERS program ends? And what we'll say is, you know, of course there will be some failures, but truthfully, we usually see in the normal course, even in the best of times, January being a pretty ugly month where a lot of tenants do fail. And this year, we actually saw virtually none fail in January. So my sense of it is you're going to see the same effect. It's just going to be latent, and it'll happen in October or November rather than January. But I don't think it's going to be as significant as you think because a lot of these tenants are exactly the type that are thriving in this reopening environment, like restaurants, um, like street front fashion, um, like uh, gyms. So I really, we, we don't have a significant concern that there will be fallout over and above what the normal course would be.
12: Great. Thanks very much. I will turn it
3: back. Thanks, Pommy.
1: There are no further questions at this time. I will now turn the call back to Mr. Gitlin Gitlin, for closing remarks.
3: All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on the call. And I know it's a very busy reporting season, so I'm not going to uh, keep you here. Uh, for much longer enjoy your weeks and uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you all soon thanks for joining us Bye.
0: save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful angus 90 percent lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or 7-up all with your card shop these deals at your local kroger less than five miles away or tap the screen now to download the kroger app to save big today